All right, if you did not, we, we do have a, a handout for you tonight. If you did not get one when you came in, if you didn't get one of the handouts when you came in, raise your hand and we'll see. Johnny, who's got, Larry, somebody there, Larry's got some. Raise your hand and Larry or Johnny, somebody will make sure that you get one of the, one of the handouts. Uh, also, it, we, I know we ran short last week on the handouts a little bit. If you need one from last week, see me when we're done tonight, and I've got, uh, got a few more of those so that you can go back and review what we did last week. <sighs> it's warm in here to me. Of course, I've got a jacket on. I'm already, already warm. Uh, let's go before the Lord again, and then we will kind of dig into the topic tonight. Heavenly Father. Lord, as we have just voiced in song how great of a God you are, as we voiced in song, Lord, our belief, our faith, Father, we are, we are really in a, a state of having faith and seeking understanding. Lord, you've given us your word You've given us the presence of your Holy Spirit within us to help us understand your word and apply it to give us insight and enlightenment. Father, as we look tonight, we pray that you speak to us. Uh, speak to us as we, we kind of talk about your word, but speak to us too as we read and study your word. Lord, bless us tonight. Let us go away from here tonight stronger in our faith and more firm in our understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I'm going to read again from Ephesians uh, chapter 1, this verse that it just seems to be over in our a few verses, they just seem to be over and over, God laying them back into my mind and on my heart as I, no matter where I am in scripture and no matter what I'm reading or preparing for teaching Sunday school or, or leading this tonight, uh, I, I just keep being impressed uh, with these verses beginning in chapter 1, uh, verse 15 down through 18. Paul writes, for this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints. I remind you that Paul's writing to believers here. He's writing to people of faith, writing to people like, like you. Do not cease, I, he's saying he does not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And this is the prayer that he's praying for these people of God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, now listen to this, may give, you, give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his 
calling. I see in that verses that idea of faith seeking understanding. Paul is praying here that the people of the church, that, the, that God gives them a spirit of wisdom, and wisdom, as we know, is to putting knowledge into practice. It's how to, to apply the knowledge of wisdom and of revelation. Revelation is that that only God can tell us, the things that we can't find out for ourselves unless he reveals it to us. And primarily what that is, is God himself. The only way we can come to know God is if he reveals himself to us. He's chosen to do that through his word. And that's why we, we study it. So we pray that God gives you a, a, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That is faith-seeking understanding. It is faith-seeking knowledge. That's what we're to be about. We don't just come to faith in Christ, accept him as Lord and Savior, receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and suddenly stop inquiring about God. We're, we're to keep seeking, keep searching and keep increasing our knowledge of God. Some people say that, you know, we're, since we are New Testament believers, we're, we're, we're on this side of the cross. Uh, so they say we don't needn't bother to study the Old Testament. The, the Old Testament's been set aside by the New Testament. Um, in 144 A.D., Marcion taught that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were different gods. And therefore, the Old Testament was no longer necessary. So Marcion removed all the reference to the Old Testament from his New Testament. He was left with little more than a little bit of the Gospel of Luke and some of the writings of Paul. Marcion rightly was branded a heretic and expelled from the church. The Old Testament is the authoritative word of God, just as the New Testament is. Jesus accepted it as such. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came into this world to abolish the law or the prophets. That was the Old Testament of his day. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill it. Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed. To Paul, the scripture that existed in his hands at that day was the Old Testament that we have today. The Old Testament prophets declared it in their writings. They say, thus says the Lord God of Israel. Jeremiah. Haggai says, then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet and many of the other prophets as well. As we talked about last week about how we can trust the Bible, there is a continuity of context and of history from the Old Testament into the New Testament and beyond continuity of theme, continuity of imagery. Uh, it is part of what God has given us. But both the Old and New Testament, they are both the word of God and the word of man. Look at that there in, under point two. This is the quote that we've used uh, from Dr. Ryrie. Inspiration, speaking here is of God breathed of the inspired scripture. Inspiration is God's superintending of human authors so that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error in the words of the original autographs, his revelation, that's God's revelation to man. So God used human authors to record his words 
in human language so that we could understand it. That's how God has chosen to reveal himself. Uh, John R.W. Stott says, since the Bible is double-authored, the word of God and the word of humanity, we must have a double approach to it. First, because it is the word of God, must, one must read it as we read no other book, in awe and on our knees. Realizing that this is one unique book. It is the word of God. We are to approach it humbly and prayerfully. But second, because it is word of humanity, we must read it exactly as we read any other book with critical mind and thought. Some people use the expression, the Bible says and I believe it and that settles it. That's a strong statement of faith, but we are also to seek understanding. And seeking understanding means to engage your mind when you read scripture. We don't read it without thought and thinking. The Old Testament is applicable because it is fulfilled in the context of the New Testament. That's what Jesus was saying when he said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill it. The New Testament is, of course, the record of Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament. So we can't just dismiss the Old Testament. It is the foundation upon which the New Testament rests. History is the arena of God's revelation of himself. God revealed himself to mankind in history. 60% of the Old Testament is historical narrative through which God reveals his purpose, his actions, and his character. I like the word historical, Old Testament narrative or historical narrative rather than saying it's an Old Testament story. It's a Bible story. When we think of a, a Bible story, we think, well, it could be kind of like any story, a folk story or any made-up story. The Bible is, the Old Testament is historical narrative. It did happen. It is the story of God, his interaction with man. Continuity of the Old Testament and the New Testament that we've mentioned, it means that they should be read in light of each other. The Old Testament basis of the Old Testament gives us additional insight into the New Testament. But the New Testament often says things explicitly that the Old Testament tells and teaches in a story. Jesus himself said, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Remember that was the, what happened when Jesus, the resurrected Christ, appeared to the uh, the, 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 on his way to Emmaus and he revealed himself from the prophets and through the Old Testament. When we read the Old Testament, the Old Testament narratives, the historical narratives of the Old Testament, we are to do it in awe and on our knees but with a critical mind and thought. Engage your heart and your head when reading the Old Testament, really with reading any of scripture. It is God's revelation of himself. Therefore, God is always the main character in his story. 
It isn't a story about Joseph. It isn't a story about Moses. It is a story about God and his dealing with his people and with his creation and with his world. Keep that in mind as you're, you're reading the Old Testament narratives. It is God's revelation of his purpose. Therefore, he is always the protagonist. He is always the one that directs the action. He is always the reason that things happen. As you read the Old Testament narratives, look for God in that narrative. Some of them, you can read a, a whole book and God isn't mentioned. There's one in the Old Testament like that. Esther, right? And yet, God works throughout that book of the Old Testament, that whole narrative. Uh, you can read Ruth. And God is mentioned in there, but we think the story is about Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, but it is not. It is about God and his dealing with his people. It is God's revelation of his actions. And I love this. Therefore, he is always the hero. Samson isn't the hero. Joseph isn't the hero. Moses isn't the hero. God is always the hero of his stories in the Old Testament. When you're reading the Old Testament narratives, though, several things that you need to remember. They usually don't teach directly a doctrine of Scripture. When you're reading an Old Testament narrative, sometimes we are tempted to take a phrase in there or whatever and turn that into a doctrinal statement. If you're reading an historical narrative, you may occasionally find a statement that God makes in it that you can hang on to, but typically that's not what it's there for. That doctrine will be taught in the New Testament somewhere more explicitly. Paul, over and over again, will state a statement of doctrine that we find as we read the narratives of the Old Testament. Usually, an Old Testament, it illustrates a doctrine that is taught somewhere else. The other thing that we don't want to get confused by, a couple of things, the Old Testament narratives, they record what happened. They don't tell us what should have happened or ought to have happened. And it doesn't always have a single moral of the story. It is God revealing his dealing with his people. And what people do is not always a good example. Frequently, it's just the opposite. You think of David, a man after God's own heart, an adulterer and a murderer. Frequently, the stories of the Old Testament, narratives of the Old Testament, they show the truth of humanity, but they reveal the truth of who God is in his dealings with his people. Most of the characters and the actions in the Old Testament are far from perfect. There's only one perfect character throughout the Old Testament, and that is God himself. We usually are not told whether what happened was good or bad. We're expected to judge that on the basis of direct teaching elsewhere. You know, in, in the story of David, as we read of David, David's adultery with Bathsheba, nowhere in that story does it say that that was wrong. There's no direct statement in that story that says it was wrong. 
We know it was wrong. It's taught elsewhere in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the consequences are made very clear as you read the narrative of the Old Testament. But we have to find those direct teachings elsewhere and bring that into the stories that we read. The other thing, because we are limited in our capacity to understand sometimes, every story doesn't tell everything. Each one is selective and an incomplete revelation. You cannot get all of your picture of God from any single narrative in the Old Testament. Except, I think, the first several chapters of Genesis. That's God's very direct revelation of himself through an Old Testament narrative. And we're going to look at some of that here in just a minute. The other thing that you must remember and not, get, not try to do, they do not answer all of our theological questions. The Old Testament narratives are the basis of our understanding who God is. We're taught in a story form who God is. They don't present a systematic theology to us. What are some of the errors that we make as teachers and preachers and readers of the Old Testament narratives? Sometimes we allegorize. That means we make everything in that story stand for something else, and we draw conclusions based on that. Sometimes allegory is used in the Old Testament narratives. When they are, they are typically clearly recognizable. Uh, in Ezekiel 23, you see the, the allegory set up, and, and, and the Ezekiel presents these two characters, but then he states in verse 4, this one stands for Jerusalem, and this one stands for something else. And it's very clear then what he's doing is making an allegory, but he clarifies what those things mean. When there's no comment like that, you cannot assume that it's an allegory. You must assume it is a historical narrative that God is revealing something through the story. The other common error we make is we take the story out of its historic and literary context. Uh, it's very easy for us sometimes to come to, to a point that we want to make and we find a story to fit it, and we really have to be careful about that as teachers, as preachers, and as readers seeking understanding. Try not to do that. Uh, the other error that we often make that we should watch out for is combining parts of separate stories to make a point that isn't made by either story. You know, we take this little bit of out of the story of Joseph, this little bit out of the story of David, and this little bit perhaps out of the story of Ruth, and we make a point that none of them have made in those stories. Uh, there's a danger in that. The danger is that we then are reading into that narrative something that isn't there. God is revealing himself to us through his word. It is a, a precious thing. We are, it, is a, it is a sacred obligation we have as readers of his revelation 
to handle it as something holy and not try to, to read into that narrative something that isn't there. As we look at any of the Old Testament narratives, I want to remind you of the three things that I, I had uh, stated at the end of our last session. God is both the subject and the hero of the story. When you start thinking otherwise, think again and look more closely at what you're reading. I tell you, you will find God in that story because that's why he's given it to us. Each story is part of God's larger story of redemption. Each and every narrative, no matter how lengthy or no matter how short, is part of the story of redemption. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption. That was the purpose. That's, that, that, that's what the purpose of the stories are. It's to reveal God as the Redeemer God. Each story is part of God's larger story of creating a people for his own possession. 1 Peter 2.9 You are part of that story. Do you like to hear stories of your ancestors? Stories of your grandparents? What it was like when they lived? Their character? That's what you're reading when you're reading the Old Testament narratives. Those are your spiritual ancestors. We learn about each other from hearing stories about each other. I was going through my email the other night, and I was reminded of an email I got from my oldest brother back in spring uh, last year. Uh, and it was a story, and he, he's a great storyteller, and he wrote this story. It's a real story. It's something that really happened. And so those, those of you who are in my Sunday school class have heard this story before. But my brother, he, he's recounting what happened at my dad's house. My dad turns 99 on October 1st. This happened about a year and a half ago. My brother was on his way uh, actually into town. They were getting ready to do some renovation in dad's bathroom to make it easier for him to get in and take a shower and all that stuff. So my brother was on his way to the store for that and he gets a call from my niece, his daughter, and, and she says, Dad, you've got to get here right away. He says, what's the matter? He says, Pop, they call him Pop. They call my dad, Pop's gone crazy. He says, what's wrong? He said, he's standing on the sofa, he's got a broomstick in his hand, he's waving it behind the sofa, and he says there's a duck back there. Okay. My dad lives up in central Illinois. He says there's a duck back there. And he says, we've looked, oh, there's nothing there. So my brother's worried now, and he gets in the car, and he gets over to my dad's house. By this time, my niece has got my dad calmed down, and in the kitchen, he's eating a hamburger. You want to get my dad off of what he's doing? Offer him a hamburger, you know. Takes him in, and first thing they do is, is they say, okay, Pop, you know, what, what's going on? He says, there's a duck in there. And I, go get the duck out. And so they go in and they fuss around. They look, there's no duck. They look around. And, and so they test his blood sugar. You know, it's a natural thing to do, right? They test his blood sugar. It's within its usual range. 
So they, he, my dad's still sitting there. He's going, did you guys get the duck out? So finally, they just, yeah, we got the duck. We took care of the duck. We, we got him out. He says, it's a blue-winged teal. Okay? He says, I used to hunt those with my dad. And this is my dad. He says, I used to hunt those with my dad when I was a kid. He says, okay, Pop, it's a blue-winged teal. The next day, my brother's there uh, with the carpenter about to show him what they're going to do, and they open the closet door. My niece lets out a squeal because they think there's a mouse down there, and guess what was there? A blue-winged teal. <laughs> a hen, even. But my dad had recognized it. Okay. The reason I'm telling you that story, how many of you created a picture in your head as that story went? How many of you feel like you know just at least a little bit more about my family than what you knew before that story. Okay. Each one of the Old Testament narratives is just like that. It's God telling a story of his dealings with his family in order to reveal a little bit about his character and about who he is. See, it's important that we read these things and we, we think and we, we understand what it is that God is up to when he's taken the trouble to have human authors over 4,000 years write his revelation, that he's taken the trouble to have interpreters put it into our language to preserve it so that we have it accurately. Don't you think you wish should take the trouble to read it? Read it in awe and on our knees and yet thoughtfully and critically. Last week we looked at several reasons that we can trust that the Bible we have is true. Uh, I think what we need to do is trust God that his purpose for it will be fulfilled. We sometimes let it just go by when we, we quit reading or we only read our favorite parts. Part of the reason we do that, part of the reason we only read the favorite parts, the easy parts, is because we don't want to be confronted with what the other parts tell us. But we need to be. We need to be confronted by God through His Word. I want to use just kind of quickly, and, and we cannot go through this verse by verse, but we're going to look at the first three chapters of Genesis in about ten minutes. Uh, I wish we could go through it verse by verse, but we can't. Uh, but first, before we even do that, whenever anyone begins to, to read or teach the Genesis story. Everybody wants to know all about how he did, how God did this. Uh, they want to try to harmonize the Bible's account of creation with what we've been taught in school, right? Or we want to dismiss one or the other. The Bible and science deal with separate issues. They deal with different questions, different answers. Scientific knowledge is always changing. 
Every time there's a new discovery or a new, a new theory, they change what science tells us. Our inability to harmonize what we've been taught, what we see in science, and, and what it says in the Bible, it doesn't mean that they're in conflict ultimately. It means we just don't know enough yet to harmonize them. I ask whether we can be content to let the Bible and science reveal insights in their respective areas without attempting detail by detail harmonization. I'm going to read through some of this and I'm not going to make any effort to harmonize. Because I think if we are content to let the two go along in parallel tracks, eventually they'll merge. And until then, it pushes us toward faith, which is exactly what God wants us to be. As he reveals himself to us, we are called to read his word in faith and continue to seek understanding. So what does the, the Genesis account tell us? Open your Bibles, go ahead, turn it to Genesis 1.1. We'll just start there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we'll stop there for now. What does that tell us? When you put your mind in gear and you start thinking about just that simple sentence, pause and think about it in a minute. Most of us in our faith will say, well, it just it means God created the heavens and the earth, and it does. It means that. It also tells us when. When did God do that? In beginning. John tells us that in the New Testament, too, in the beginning. In the beginning. You know, really, in the, in the, uh, the, the Hebrew there, it doesn't say in the beginning. It just says in beginning. When God began everything, that's when he did it. And God created the heavens and the earth. There's only one thing in that sentence that you would need to turn to, to any other uh, source to have additional insight on. The rest of it is all things we can draw out of just that English sentence, but there is one thing that, that uh, some Bibles will have in a footnote, others don't. In the beginning, God, the word used for God there is Elohim, which is a plural. I think it's a reference to the Trinity. I'll accept that by faith. In beginning, in the beginning of all things, God... He created the heavens and the earth. That tells us several things. It tells us that God exists. Who did the creation? He did. How? He created. What? He created the heavens and the earth. That's everything that there is. Two spheres, both the material and the spiritual. It tells us that He exists, therefore refuting atheism. It tells us that he is both a plurality and a unity, the Elohim, but, but it's a singular God. Refutes polytheism, that there are many gods. If God created everything that there is, how could there be another God of his equal? 
there can't. God created the heavens and the earth. There's nothing else that exists except him. So God created from what? From nothing. Created from nothing, thereby refuting materialism. I was trying to think back, and I am sure that when I was in fifth grade and we were beginning to teach science, I was taught that material things can only be destroyed and released energy, and that energy never goes away, that the universe is, in effect, eternal. The material world always has been and always will be. That's materialism. The Bible tells us God created it from nothing. Science is clearly coming closer to closer to accepting that statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It tells us that he is separate from his creation. God is not part of creation. That refutes pantheism, which says that God is in everything. God is in the whole universe, and we will someday be absorbed into the nothingness of nirvana. One of the strains of Hinduism. Many other religions worship the creation in that way. So the Bible begins, the Bible story, the Old Testament narrative begins with what? Who's the main character there? God. Uh, who's the main actor there? God. Is this about the world and how it was created? No. It's about what God did. About what God did. He is the subject. He is the hero. And then we go on through that first chapter and we, we, we see God, by his word, creating just the whole creation, everything that it is. And we get down to the end of that chapter. Verse 31 says, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day and all was wonderful in the whole universe. God had just created a, a perfect universe and there it was. God was clearly the subject and God was the actor and and, and God was the, the focus of that first chapter, and it's really told from his perspective, isn't it? Then we come to chapter 2. Chapter 2 is a retelling, basically, of the, uh, the, the same creation account. All of the truths that we just talked about, we find in there, but it's told in a little different way. If you read chapter 2, you, you, you begin to think that man is the center of that. And in fact, what this is, chapter 2, is really the story of creation told from man's perspective. It's as if perhaps Adam was telling the story. Uh, but it's the same story. It's the, the creation account retold. And then we get to chapter 3. Does it bother anyone else that we only get to chapter 3 and we already get to the fall of man? Wouldn't you have liked a lot more story before then? But no, chapter 3, we get to the fall of man. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made and said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. You may think that the serpent or Adam or Eve are the, the t subject of that, but change your thinking a little bit and look at this and think, wait, wait, what is, God is the subject. What's, what's this telling me about, about God? And you go back and remember the, the creation. We see in those first five verses really the temptation of Eve and of Adam. And what does Satan do there? He twists God's word. He challenges her with a question about God's word. Sin so often begins in our lives and in the life of every human being with that same problem. The twisting and the questioning of God's word. The serpent, verse 4, says to the woman, you surely will not die. A direct refutation of what God had told them. But they accept it. Verse 6, sin enters the world. As they give in to their desires, as they ignore what God had told them. Then the eyes of both of them, verse 7 says, were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God. See, he is still this subject. He's still the main actor. The Lord God comes. He was walking in the garden as had been their habit apparently. Then the Lord God calls out and says, Hey man, where are you? God's the seeker. They're hiding from him, it says. We find out that. But God, even here, in that initial act of sin, God seeks after man. And what does sinful man do? He hides from God. He hides from God. Have you ever noticed that when you start to drift away from God, you, you begin to lose your desire to be confronted by his word? You lose your desire to be in the presence of his people. It's a human condition. Now here we see it in this story. They give in to temptation. God seeks after them. God has always been full of grace. You know, we're only barely halfway into the chapter Verses 14 and 15, God begins to enact judgment. He enacts judgment first on the serpent. And look at verse 15. He says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And then this, He shall bruise you on the head or crush your head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's seen as the first presentation of the gospel. Satan may bruise Christ, but Christ, the he there, will crush Satan, the seed of man, will crush Satan. And then he continues in, in God's grace even in the next verses. 
When he tells the woman she will multiply her pain in childbirth, in pain you will bring forth children. Doesn't sound like grace, does it? What was the punishment for sin? Death. What's the promise of childbirth imply? Life. God did not withdraw the punishment of sin, but he's delayed it in order that mankind may continue to live, that Adam and Eve may have children, and God may populate the earth once again, that he may find those that are faithful. Because remember, what God is about is creating a people for his own possession. And even this is part of that story. The judgment on the world, the ground that is cursed, that man will, his work will be frustrated, he will have stress. Verse 19 tells us man will physically die. Then in verse 20 and 21 again we see God's grace providing a covering for them so that they, they won't feel it necessary to hide from God in their nakedness anymore. God has sought them and now he's trying to make it easier for them to, to seek him. Verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Why do you think God kicked them out? Why, why didn't he let them get to the tree of life? God is seeking a people to redeem. They had rejected. Can you imagine if God let those who reject him live forever? The compounding of evil upon evil upon evil. It was his grace and his mercy which kept them from taking of the tree of life. Have you ever found yourself in that horrible condition where you know you have rebelled against God and you feel his, his hand upon you and you resist the, 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 the calling to repent and you feel the guilt of your sin? How horrible that becomes by God's grace. He doesn't want them to live forever in that state, that state of sin and hiding from him. He wants a people in relationship with him. So he grants them childbirth and takes away their ability to live apart from him forever. God's mercy. God doesn't want them to live in a state of eternal lostness in his presence. God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. You know, the image of God is referenced again in chapter 5, the first verse. It's referenced again in chapter 9 and the sixth verse. That's after the flood. The image of God is marred in each of us, but it's not destroyed. 
We have enough of the image of God in us to recognize him in his word. As believers, we have the Holy Spirit within us to enlighten us through his word. My prayer for each of us tonight is that we will, as we've been challenged by our pastor to begin the reading of scripture on this challenge over the next 260 days. We began in Genesis. If you read last week, you've read up through Genesis chapter 9. And you should have thrown in, I think, the first three chapters of Job for good measure. As you read those narratives, as you read those narratives, as you read the continuing narratives in the Old Testament, keep in mind, God is the subject. God is the hero. God is the protagonist. He's telling you those stories in order for you to know him better. So read them with anticipation that when you're through, you will know him more. He will know you more. And you'll have a stronger relationship with him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, that you have entrusted us with your word. Lord, give us the grace, give us the mercy, give us the insight as we read it to see you. And Lord, let us come to you humbly, on our knees in prayer, but Lord, sharpen our minds as well as we read your word that we may increase in knowledge, in revelation, and in wisdom. In Christ's name, amen. If you need a copy of the handout, I've got some. If you want the copy of the handout from last week and didn't get one, let me know. I've got it. You're dismissed. <laughs>